I'm Jonathan Bastian, this week on KCRW's Life Examined. In today's world of temptation and overabundance, the practice of self-discipline, an idea praised by ancient Stoic philosophers Marcus Aurelius, Cicero, and Seneca, may have newfound meaning. I see self-discipline as a cornerstone of what the Stoics thought was not just our sort of duty and responsibility as human beings, but also in the pursuit of the good life. I don't think there is such a thing as the good life, no matter how much we might fantasize about it without self-discipline. And later, the science of habits, from sticking with new practices to unlearning the bad ones. You can put frictions in place that force you to pause and think for a moment before you just mindlessly engage in a behavior, and that gives you at least an opportunity for the thinking part of your mind instead of the automatic part of your mind to decide, is this what I want to be doing right now? The power of self-discipline with Ryan Holiday and the making of a habit. That's coming up on Life Examined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. The ability to master anything in life is a challenge. But when it comes to living a good life, it's the practice of self-discipline and moderation that can be easily overlooked. After all, being disciplined is to be predictable, something that many of us shy away from. I mean, it sounds kind of boring, right? But in his latest book, Discipline is Destiny, Ryan Holiday takes a closer look at what it means to be disciplined— Drawing on ancient Stoic philosophy, temperance and self-discipline is to demand the best of oneself, even when no one is looking. In his new book, Holiday looks to more recent history to provide some interesting and surprising examples, from Toni Morrison and Hemingway to Queen Elizabeth II, to show that an effective use of time and keeping a routine, being extremely disciplined can lead to satisfaction and joy. Ryan Holiday is a speaker, writer, and host of the Daily Stoic podcast. He's the author of numerous books, and the latest is called Discipline is Destiny, The Power of Self-Control. And he joins me now. Ryan Holiday, great to have you back on Life Examined. Welcome. Yeah, thank you for having me. So talk about how this idea of discipline fits into uh, Stoic philosophy or or the different Stoic ideals. I I know you go beyond that in this book, but um, we turn to you for all things Stoic. So I'm curious how you would how you see it fitting into the framework. Well, the Stoics had four cardinal virtues. They actually happen to be the same as the cardinal virtues of Christianity. But these four virtues are courage, temperance or self-discipline justice and wisdom. So I see self-discipline as as a cornerstone, one of the sort of key pillars of what the Stoics thought was not just our sort of duty and responsibility as as human beings, but also in the pursuit of the the good life. I don't I don't think there is such a thing as the good life no matter how, you know, much we might fantasize about it. Uh, without without self-discipline. No one is more miserable than the person who does what they want, whenever they want it, without limitation, without checks and balances. That's a, that's a recipe for ruin and misery. <laughs> it's interesting. What you just described is actually maybe what uh, most people would say they want in this world. So <laughs> maybe yes. you can say more about that. Well, you know, if you look at the modern world, it has been a steady march. Obviously, there are some exceptions here, but a steady march where we have more freedom, more opportunity, more abundance than our ancestors could have ever conceived. Right? You, you take Marcus Aurelius, the emperor of Rome, immense fortune, immense power, immense access, and just the, the ordinary things that we have access to, the ease at which we can do things, we can change, we can go places, this would have been inconceivable to them. And I, I would hardly argue that we're, you know, happier or better as a result of it, just universally so, because what's required from all of this abundance and freedom and is is as as they would say, sort of the it necessitates a self discipline. Be, because we can do whatever we want. We have to decide, you know what we're willing to do and not willing to do. Or again, I think, you know, that is a that is a perilous road. Uh, I, was it Oscar Wilde who said, you know, the, the two tragedies in life are not getting everything you want and getting everything that you want? Mm. It, when you get everything that you want, when suddenly you are powerful or successful or important or well off, you know, the things that you couldn't do before, you can do now, but that doesn't mean it's a good idea to do them. Mm. 
Yeah, no, I, I think this is this really strange conundrum we've hit in the modern world, which is that um, choice is everywhere from trying to pick out, you know, your, your cereal box at the grocery store to picking a career. And I mean, this is, you know, assuming you have some level of, of privilege and, and access to some financial resources, but, but it just is well, true. Think about a dating app. Sure. Right? Like you have access to an unlimited amount of potential people that, that, that uh, you could be with. Yeah. And that the fact that there is a tangible sort of real, uh, you know, amount of other fish in the sea, it makes it hard for some people to stay in relationships. It makes it hard for them to, I don't want to say settle because it sounds like uh, the wrong idea, but it makes it hard for them to make a choice, yeah. right? We, we, we are overwhelmed by choice and opportunity and distraction. And that makes it hard to sort of be in the moment or to, to find what is actually the right thing for you. Mm. Yeah, and I think that you, know, you see this a lot in relationships or when somebody's thinking about big life questions like career, there's always now this this looming thought of maybe something would just be a little bit easier. The person I could be with would be a little bit better. The career that I didn't choose could be a little bit more fulfilling. And, and I, you could just get lost in this uh, in perpetuity. I think I think that's right and I think a lot of a lot of people do. The unlimitedness of it all becomes not a, a a gift but a curse. So talk to me a little bit about just this virtue of discipline and and how you understand the word after probably looking at it through a number of examples in the book. The the line from the Stoics who were often either in positions of power or advisors uh, to those who were in power. They said, no one is fit to rule who has not first mastered themselves. And so I, I, I love thinking of discipline in that sense. Uh, Seneca called it the greatest empire, right? To be in command of yourself. And I think the reason he was saying this is again, having seen very powerful, successful, wealthy people up close, he saw that actually that wasn't all of that, all that rare, that there were lots of people who were in charge of armies or, you know, uh, had an enormous estate. Um, but he said, you know, of these men, and they were mostly men, obviously, he said, show me one who isn't a slave, mm. right? He said, one man is a slave to his mistress, the other to ambition, the other to what other people think about them. He says, even, even the slave owners are slaves to their slaves. And I, I think this is a really key way of thinking and looking about it, uh, because so often from a distance, we admire, you know, a, a, a person of influence, a person of power, a person of fame. But when we actually look at their lives up close, we realize that it wasn't a very free life because they are not in control. They had not, they had mastered the piano or mastered, you know, the ballot box, Wh whatever their specific domain was, they conquered it. The thing that they were not in charge of was their ambition, was, you know, their need to be validated, was their appetites. And I, <clears throat> I think what the virtue of self-discipline is really is about is about setting our sights on this more elusive, rarer kind of mastery. How does one do that? Um, maybe you can give now some examples of it and talk about, you know, whether it's something we're gifted, whether it's a practice. Um, I'd love to hear more. Well, I definitely think it's, it is a practice. Um, I'll give you an example from my own life. Obviously, I'm an ambitious, driven person. I, I try to compete inside my profession at the highest level. I, I write books. I, uh, I try to do my best on these books. Um, but I try to think about going back to a very stoic practice, you know, am I rooting my goals and efforts towards things that I control? Or am I rooting my goals and efforts towards things that other people control, right? Am I trying to write the best book that I'm capable of writing? Or am I trying to write a book that is received well by fancy people uh, who celebrate me and invite me to their parties, mm. right? And it takes more discipline to say, hey, I'm not going to aim at the thing that might be more fun, that might be more socially acceptable, um, that, that might be a more all-consuming, you know, sort of thing to chase. I'm going to focus on this humbler, more internal, uh, less quantifiable thing, which is you know, am I realizing my own potential? And then sort of 
even within that, you know, am I going to let this thing that is important to me that I'm well compensated for, am I going to let that consume and take over my life? Or do I have the self-discipline to put boundaries around that and say, here, this is what time I come home from the office every day, right? This is uh, how often I am gone on business trips, right? This is how present I am able to be in the middle of a writing project. So, you know, discipline isn't just like, hey, what time do you get out of bed in the morning? Or, you know, do you follow this diet or that diet? Uh, discipline is also sort of reining in these urges or drives that, you know, may well be societally accepted or validated uh, urges. Mm -hmm. Well, I think there's also something else going on here that, that I'd love to explore, which is that it's not just a matter of discipline, but but one needs to know what are they being disciplined for? What is the value you're aiming towards? What is the greater good? Which is not not the discipline itself. It, it's to be, uh, you know, a good person, a good father, a good writer. I mean, so there needs to be something in which, you know, we're moving towards by developing this kind of practice. It's funny you point that out because Marx really specifically uh, catches himself in meditations in that exact regard. He goes... Look, you're trying to be a better wrestler, a better speaker, you know, a better this, a better that. He's like, but not a better person. He says, not a better forgiver of faults, mm. not a better friend in tight places. And, you know, it's often easier and clearer to get better at, you know, how fast you run a mile mm -hmm. or whether you have six pack abs or, you know, whether your stock portfolio grew this year. Those are, those are things that require discipline, um, and these are things that you know not enough people are uh, as skilled at as they could be. But if those things come at the expense of improvements or discipline in, you know, do you lose your temper at people that you mm -hmm. love, right? Um, do you sort of selfishly pursue your own interests at the expense of, you know, the common good, or you know, uh, it, it's it's. Hard, it's harder to be a good man than a great man, if that distinction makes sense. Mm. Yeah, and, and maybe we can bring in some more examples here. And there's a bunch of interesting ones. I mean, you wrote extensively about Queen Elizabeth, who recently died, and as somebody that, that exhibited quite a bit of discipline. I mean, her, her job is basically discipline, if you think about it. Um, you know, the the list of the things that the Queen can do is much shorter than the list of things the queen is not permitted to uh -huh. do. And yes, obviously she has an enormous uh, inherited fortune of questionable colonial origins. And we can get into all of these sort of questions about the legitimacy of the monarchy. But I think if you really zoom in and you think about what it would be like to have a job where essentially all of the decisions of the government are made, you know, ostensibly in your name, and yet you have no ability to voice your opinion on these things. Mm -hmm. You have no power to direct or shape them. You have to exist not, not solely as a figurehead. That is to miss what her, the actual art of her profession is. Um, but, but you have to be remarkably restrained and uh, you have to wear the mask of ceremony. And the work that you do has to be you know, primarily indirect you know, primarily uh, sort of, uh, uh, it's a long-term thing. And I, it, it, it was a seven-decade career for which there were, you know, truly no off days, mm -hmm. uh, defined almost entirely by poise and restraint and, uh, you know, uh, self-withdrawal. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting, you know, None of this sounds like a very fun life, we would say, or one that is, seems particularly appealing. So I'm wondering why you thought this was kind of an important example to point to. You know, it, it, it's actually funny. I, uh, from what I've read, she, she also loved the job, mm -hmm. right? She loved meeting people. She loved ceremony. She was deeply committed to the, uh, we talked about earlier, having sort of a North Star being uh, being a force for positive good in the world, as the as the British Empire waned and it became replaced with this idea of the the Commonwealth of Nations, mm. of which she was the head. Um, I think you know you could argue 
that she had the most fun of any monarch, not in the debauched sort of gluttony, uh, gluttonous sense that some of her predecessors and relatives have, um, but, but as a person who had a clear sense of purpose, a, a, a clear sense of what her job was, and a, and a desire to wake up every single day and do it. I mean, uh, I, I loved the, uh, the, the anecdote that um, she she fell asleep once on the job in 70 years. Wow. Uh, and that was at a lecture about magnets <laughs> when she was like 85 <laughs> years old. You know, she she found ways to make the job really interesting. You know, she was a remarkable observer of people and things. She would notice things that her staff and her security would never see. She was a you know always there with a quip or a joke. I I I, I certainly uh, it was it took a lot out of her, as I think all you know sort of true greats at their professions you know can attest. But I also think there was an immense amount of satisfaction and pride that comes from a, a job well done. Mm -hmm. And when you frame it, I think, as, as one waking up with, with a purpose and a structure and a reason to complete duties, I mean, I think that's something that a lot of us crave. And, and that's something that I think a lot of us are missing in just modern life in which, you know, uh, we can just follow the winds of culture to whatever direction they may blow. Yeah, the Stoics would say that's what we're here for, right? That we each have a contribution to make. And that by not making that contribution, we hurt not just ourselves, but the hive. And that by making that contribution, we help not just the hive, but ourselves. And so, you know, sort of figuring out what that thing is for you uh, and then committing yourself to it, it that's everything. Marcus mm. Rios says, love the discipline you know and let it support you. And I think he means discipline in both senses. He means it not just the, you know, this is my routine, this is my structure, this is what the job demands, but the discipline of philosophy for him, the discipline of leadership for him. You know, figure out what that thing is and give yourself over to it. And there's a passage in Meditations where he talks about, you know, struggling to get out of bed in the morning. And he says, ah, oh, but it's so warm here under the covers. And he goes, but wait, you weren't put here to huddle under the blankets and be warm. He says, you know, you should go and do what your nature demands. And he says, people who love what they do will wear themselves down doing it. He says, they'll, they'll forget even to sleep and eat. And, you know, when I'm really in the midst of a project that's challenging me and fulfilling me and I feel like is important, I mean, that's just one of the most wonderful feelings in the world. Yeah, and we know this from psychology that, you know, whatever those activities are, whatever the flow states you can be brought into, th those are the places that we're going to eventually find a lot of gratitude and happiness day by day. And I think do good, important work, right? Mm -hmm. Nobody resentfully does uh, peak performance, right? Mm -hmm. Like it, it comes from really locking in and, and loving it. There's a bunch of other interesting examples I'd love for you to get to, too. For example, you talk about another writer here. This is Toni Morrison. How does she fit into the conversation of discipline? Well, Toni Morrison, I think, is a very inspiring example to all of us writers or, or parents. Um, you know, when she sits down to write her first novel, uh, she has a, a full-time day job. She's an editor at Random House, and she's just recently become a single mother of two young boys. Mm. And she finds that you know, to make contact, as she says, with the muses, she has to be watching the sun come up. And more importantly, she can only write before she's heard the word mom in the morning. And so for her, it becomes this sort of ritual of waking up very early, attacking, attacking the day, attacking the, the page in front of her. You know, Hemingway himself would famously speak about sort of waking up early when it's cold and then warming yourself as you write by the writing. And I think that was her routine and the insight that she came, which is like, you can't leave this thing, the craft or the task that you're meant to do, you can't leave that for the afternoon after you've done all the other stuff. You can't, it can't be a, an afterthought it's got to be the, the main thing. Mm. You got to tackle it first. Yeah, and I think that one thing that always surprises me about, about successful people and stories like Toni Morrison is that I think a lot of us complain that we don't have enough time. But 
Why is it that the people that seem to produce the most are extremely busy as well? They're not exactly just sitting around, you know, with trust funds with nothing else going on. There, there's something about um, finding time or being in the flow of time that seems to be really productive. Yeah, I mean, everyone's got twenty the same 24 hours, right? Uh, it's sometimes a fantasy. We think, oh, they just have more time. It's easier for them. In fact, it's harder for them. They've got, you know... Additional responsibilities, the opportunity costs are, are higher for them to stay focused, uh, to, to, to be disciplined about what they say yes or no to. But I will say that you, you find that high performers have to be disciplined about the systems and structures and organizations that they build around themselves. I, I tell a, a story that I was quite inspired by in the book about Harry Belafonte uh, talking to Coretta Scott King. He's called to sort of check in on the family during the civil rights movement. And as they're on the phone, you know, she's having to put the phone down to put dinner in the oven. She's having to put the phone down because there's a crying kid that needs her. She's just running around like many of us uh, do, sort of crazy and chaotically. And he says, you know, excuse me, uh, Coretta, but do you have any help? And she goes, oh, no, of course not. My, he says, um, Martin would never permit such a thing. Mm. And it, it was true. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, was reluctant to have staff or help because he was a minister and he was you know, committed to this, uh, this nonprofit cause, this, uh, this, this organization. And it felt you know, sort of entitled or irresponsible to be spending that money to you know, have a chauffeur or a, or a maid or a cook. Um, but he was also missing the point, right? And and as as Harry Belafonte would say, you know, that ends right now. He said, I will be paying for you to have a household staff mm. so you can focus on what's actually important, which is the civil rights movement. And this idea of, you know, if you're really driven, if you're really disciplined, if you're really good at what you do, you don't like to out to 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 delegate. You're often a micromanager. And that is not a way to scale what you do. That is not a way to grow at what you do. And so it, it can require discipline to say, hey, I can't do insert thing anymore, whether mm -hmm. that's mowing your own lawn or uh, not having childcare, whatever it is. You have to figure out a way to be disciplined. These are often hard decisions so that you have carved out the space uh, and time to do the thing that only you can do. Yeah. I know you've thought a lot about how you've been productive or how others have, how they have found a way to stay disciplined. And just, I'm, I'm curious for any practical tips. I mean, waking up early, for example, or or making lists, I don't know, or exercise. Sure. What, what do you find has been kind of successful or works? I think all of that's a part of it. I mean, for me, my morning routine is centered around one, getting up early, two, not touching my phone or devices immediately after waking up. I, I like to leave a buffer of 30 minutes or an hour at least so I can be present. I can think about the day. I can see my kids in the morning. Uh, we usually go for a long walk outside before I sort of go into what I have to do for the day. That way I know, again, it's a statement of priorities that however the work goes, I also did my other most important job and I did it early. I'm not leaving it until the afternoon or the evening when I'm I'm tired and they're tired and, and all of that. So I go for this walk, I do a little journaling and then my rule is I try to tackle the hard thing first, which mm. is almost always writing. And so, you know, by 10 or 11 o'clock, I've had a successful day. Uh, there's still more to do and more that I want to do, but I've crossed off a lot of the the big items from the to-do list before, you know, before noon. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you're kind of already off and running and, and, and I've already, I've seen you do kind of post lists of other interesting things like don't use voicemail. And I don't know, you have these other kind of interesting little tips you've provided to people. Yeah. I try to, I try to limit the amount of things that can come to me. Right. Um, I, I try to, again, the phone is usually the enemy in a lot of ways. Um, I don't, uh, <clears throat> I don't try to get sucked into different rabbit holes. Um, I like to listen to music, usually like one song on repeat as I'm writing. I'll pick a song and I'll sort of get into a, a vibe or a, a zone. You know, you, you try to limit interruptions. You try to cultivate an environment that's conducive to you, you know, being in the right headspace. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm always looking for, for tips and, and tricks. Uh, but it, it, I think you talked a little bit about uh, you know, how do they have the time? The answer is ultimately, 
like nobody gives you the time. You have to make the time and the space. Mm. It's interesting that you started this conversation talking about the, the virtues of, of courage, temperance, justice, and wisdom, and how those actually also align with different Christian virtues as well, or the same ones. And, and what's interesting is when we think, though, about maybe putting some of this stuff in a more religious context, especially a Christian one, is that, you know, I, I would use the word ascetic. Um, that can come up. One that actually... Uh, a person will refuse all pleasure or bodily pleasure sure. or will begin to think that life should only be about almost a monastic way of living and uh, maybe a militaristic sense of um, a schedule every day. Uh, so maybe you can address that as well because it does seem to be where some of this could go. Yeah, look, I think it's part of the reason you see the Stoics write so strongly about these topics is that they were successful, they were ambitious, they were talented, and it wasn't as if they were, you know, in a monastery whipping themselves. Mm. They were celebrated playwrights, or they were emperors, or they were businessmen and women. And they needed sort of reminders about what was important, about what it took, uh, about, you know, I think they were talking about some of these ideas often as a counterbalance to very natural impulses or tendencies that we all have. So, you know, Marcus Aurelius doesn't write about laughing at jokes or how sex feels good or food tastes good. I think he's trying to remind himself not to get carried away by those things, which does come back to the idea of temperance or moderation. It's about balance. So, you know, the Stoics don't say anywhere like, hey, never, never drink alcohol. They just point out that it might feel good on the way down, but if you do it to such excess that you have a hangover the next day, how pleasurable was that actually? Yeah, it's interesting. I, you know, I wonder how you would reflect on this, because I know that people can read Stoicism through different lenses or see it through different lenses. And I know that you've probably been approached by people that take a more um, militaristic view of it. Sure. And I, I wonder how you would respond to that, because I know it's out there. Yeah, look, I think every, just as every philosophy and every religion has its fundamentalists, you know, its literalists, uh, it has its pickers and choosers. You know, I, I think I'm I'm somewhere in the middle. Uh, when I when I look at the at the Stoics, I see people who wrote uh, very beautiful and clear philosophical ideas, and then when I look at the lives of those same Stoics, I see them struggle as human beings to put that into practice. And so I, I, I see it as this this ideal that we are aspiring to get towards, but I also understand, you know, that we're we're human beings, mm -hmm. and that uh, there's a there's a famous moment in Marcus Aurelius's life where he loses a tutor that he uh, had had loved quite deeply, and you know he's sort of grieving and and crying, and one of the one of the Stoic philosophers goes to sort of admonish him that you know this is not what Stoicism is, and his stepfather Antoninus, who Marcus really sort of reveres above all others, says, "No, no, let the boy be human." And he says, uh, "Neither philosophy nor empire takes away human feeling." And so I, I'm just I try to remind myself that the Stoics were not these sort of superhumans; they were not religious zealots, but they were real people in the real world trying to be as disciplined as possible uh, within, you know, even the, the, the ideas of, of that we have to be, you know, enjoy even moderation in moderation, or that we have to be disciplined about our discipline. Yeah, I mean, that's huge. And I mean, to me, this is all really fundamental philosophical or, or religious stuff. I mean, you could go back to these early ideals of Apollo and Dionysus, right? Dionysus being the kind of the, the god of wine and passions and parties, and Apollo being, you know, the god of form and more of temperance. So these these kind of different archetypes have been with us, I think, for a really long time, and the difficulty in navigating them, don't you think? I do, and and there would have been, you know, just as there were the Catos of the world who seemed to be so strict with themselves as to be without 
joy. You know, the expression in Rome was, we can't all be Cato's. There were also the cautionary tales. There were the drunks and there were the addicts and there were the, the insatiable, you know, uh, uh, insatiable pleasure addicts or money addicts or mm. whatever it was. And the Stoics sort of looked at both, right, and tried to, to strike a balance. They, they tried to be philosophical as well as, you know, sort of pragmatic people involved in the world. And, and I think we're, you know, each of us tries to navigate that in our own way down to today, because as different as the world is, you know, um, the act of sitting down to a buffet dinner remains unchanged, mm -hmm. right? Um, the the uh, the the temptations there remain unchanged, and and there's this great line from Epictetus that says, like, try to live life as though you're at a banquet. You know, you can't keep it all to yourself. You know, you can't eat without limit. You try to take your helping and, you know, pass the plate along. And, and you know, so even there, they were talking about, they had the same kind of self-talk that you and I might have as we sit down to Thanksgiving in a couple months. Yeah. I also like the, the fact that you brought up this idea that sometimes we, we can't be too disciplined in our discipline, or we have to, sure. or we have to also be aware of when we think we're being disciplined, um, when it may not even be helpful. I mean, you know, we, we think of, say, I don't know, we could use the word like the virtue of exercise or something that we, we deem mm -hmm. to be a good, healthy activity, but one can be too disciplined in that. A anything can become almost an unhealthy habit when it's taken to a certain extreme. I'm, I'm sure that's something you've seen quite a bit as well. I mean, I deal with that myself all the time. I'm, I'm someone who I love to run every day or, or do some form of strenuous exercise. But like, if I'm not feeling well, um, it can often be more difficult for me to take a rest day yeah. than to just stick with what I'd like to do, right? And yet what's ultimately the healthier, more responsible thing to do, right? It's not like I'm choosing between going for a run and, you know, gorging myself on the couch. I'm I'm choosing between different kinds of self-care. And, you know, discipline is not just whipping yourself. It's not just pushing yourself. It's as, as Seneca says, it's also learning how to be a good friend to yourself, which means taking care of yourself, knowing your limits, you know, knowing your, knowing your boundaries and, and, and respecting those. Mm -hmm. Well, for anybody that's listening here and, and is just thinking, you know, I, I, I myself would like to try and, and, and just be a little bit more disciplined. Is there any place that you would suggest that they start or just some easy, easy kind of launching pads for them? I, I, I do think like, what time do you wake up and what is your relationship with like your devices or technology the second you wake up, yeah. right? Like if you're sucked into social media before your feet hit the floor. You have already seeded a certain amount of discipline before the day has even begun, right? And so I might start there with just you know being a little more intentional about how you begin the day. And I think if you can kind of own the morning, you know, you can you can really have a better chance of conquering the day. Mm. And I also really like that phrase you you said, kind of learning to be a good friend to yourself, which I think is one of yes. also kindness and, and empathy. Yeah, and that it's a it's a process, right? It's not you magically transform yourself. It's that you know, are you getting a little bit better each day? Are you making a positive contribution each day? More often than not, are you doing the disciplined thing? Uh, Zeno would say that well being is realized by small steps, but it's no small thing. And I think that's a, a wonderful encapsulation of, of the power of making disciplined decisions, you know, moment to moment, day by day. My guest has been Ryan Holiday. He's the author of the new book, Discipline is Destiny, The Power of Self-Control. And we've been lucky to have him on the show a number of times talking about Stoic philosophy and many other things. Ryan, thanks for being with us. Thanks so much. Coming up next, the power of creating good habits. But before we get to that, we'd love to hear from you. Do you have any ideas or tips when it comes to self-discipline? Are there things that work for you? A good morning routine, like Ryan Holiday was suggesting, a good cup of coffee, maybe lists, anything else come to mind? Join us and write on our Facebook page. You can find it at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined or by searching in Facebook for KCRW Life Examined. We'd love to keep growing the community and spreading the conversation. We'll be back after this short break.
Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard from Ryan Holiday, an expert on Stoic philosophy and the author of Discipline is Destiny, talk about the power of constraint and focus, especially today when we are inundated with choice. So how can we turn discipline into practice? What's the science behind changing our behavior? And are there ways to kick bad habits? Joining me next is Katie Milkman, professor at the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School. She's the author of How to Change, the science of getting from where you are to where you want to be. Katie Milkman, welcome to Life Examined. Thank you so much for having me. We're finally getting around to talking about something that's really important, which are habits, what they are, how they work. And, but before, before we kind of get to any more nuance about them, how do you think about habits at this point? Um, what do you think? Yeah, well, I think of habits as behaviors that we repeat um, without a huge amount of effort involved. So when you um, brush your teeth most evenings, you're probably not having to go to a checklist to remember it's time to brush my teeth. It just sort of happens naturally. When you shampoo your hair in the shower, it happens naturally. There's a lot of things we do that aren't incredibly effortful because we've done them so many times before. They just feel like a part of our lives and a pattern. I think that's what most people mean when they talk about habits. And it's fairly close to what an academic would say is the definition. It's an automatic-ish behavior that you've repeated so often it becomes quite easy to do without a lot of cognitive effort. Mm. And so what do we know about just kind of what's happening in the brain or, or what's the science behind some of this stuff? Yeah, the science suggests, and by the way, a lot of the science has been done on animals, which mm. is really interesting, but the science generally suggests that um, there's sort of and this has been popularized, by the way, by a lot of great books, that there's a, a habit loop that can be formed where um, you repeat a behavior over and over again, it gets rewarded in some way. And that reward can be literally you're paid for doing it, it can be people give you applause, it can be you track it in an app, and it, then you feel great seeing a streak accumulate, any kind of positive reinforcement. Once it's on autopilot, you really don't have to think deeply to engage in the behavior. Mm. And, and it, it gets put on autopilot through that repeat reward cycle. It's almost like practice. When, when I think about it, it reminds me of the way I learned to play piano as a kid, right? You go, you sit down at the bench, you play this song over and over and over again. Maybe there wasn't huge reward, but maybe somebody applauds. You just keep doing it and eventually you can play the piece. Mm. And we all kind of know things we've practiced until they become more innate. And that is really the same as what's happening with habits, whether that's biting your nails or brushing your teeth um, or making coffee in the morning. It's a similar process where you've repeated it so often that it becomes innate and easy to do and, and you don't have to think about it anymore. Well, I guess to me, it gets to the question of, of how they do form and, and the extent to which we're even aware of them forming. So maybe you can talk about that a little bit. They certainly form without intention in many cases. Otherwise, none of us would have bad habits because right. we wouldn't. We would never invest in forming bad habits, right? So um, that's the that's the the dark side of habit is that um, things like nail biting or you can think of a whole host of behaviors we, we want to quit that aren't addictive, by the way, because that's a whole other category. If you start talking about something like smoking, I don't think of that in the same category as habit because there's a, a chemical dependency that builds up. But if you think about something like smartphone use, checking your email constantly, these are all things where maybe we wouldn't have wanted them to develop, but we got that cycle of we repeated the behavior. There was some little reward that ar arose with enough frequency to make us excited about it. And say nail biting, it relieves some stress. And then this repetition leads to an automatic behavior. So it happens unconsciously in some cases or not deliberately. But the nice thing about habit is that science does suggest we can be deliberate in trying to form good ones when we'd like to see something positive change in our lives. And that's the really exciting frontier from my perspective is that there's an opportunity to deliberately use what we know about how also the bad ones form to create good ones in our lives. Yeah, so let's let's get there and maybe first say why it can be so hard, though, initially to break bad habits. 
Yeah. Well, there are many reasons that it's hard to break bad habits. One is that once they become automatic, you're no longer deliberately engaging in the behavior, right? It's it's easier to stop doing a thing when you know you're doing right, it. Right. Um, and so it's hard to put all the things in place, all the boundaries in place, the more frictions we can put up in general to make it less automatic. So I actually do have to think consciously the better we do in breaking our bad habits. And I should say that there's really wonderful research by Wendy Wood of the University of Southern California, who I, I consider the world's expert on habit, looking at how important those kinds of frictions are. Um, anything you can, any barrier you can put between you and the automatic behavior, so you have to stop and think, really helps. And then you then you get to make a decision. The problem with habit is you're not making a decision. Yeah. You're on autopilot. Yeah. What would an example of friction be? I'm just curious. Yeah. Thank you for asking me to be more concrete. So um, you might put on gloves if you're a nail biter, right? Mm. And now all of a sudden to get to my nails, I have to take off my glove. And I'm going to, right? So that's an example. But if you think about something like smartphone use, maybe you put a lock on your phone that's a 10, you know, a 10 digit code you have to enter to get in. So it doesn't just recognize your face or your thumbprint. And now you have to type that thing in. And as you're doing, so you're going to think to yourself, I am typing in 10 digits. Oh, gosh, right. do I want to be looking at my phone right now? So you can put frictions in place that force you to pause and think for a moment before you just mindlessly engage in a behavior. And that gives you at least an opportunity for the thinking part of your mind instead of the automatic part of your mind to d decide, is this what I want to be doing right now? Mm. P.S. That's not enough in many cases because you might say, yeah, I, re I really do want to bite my nails. I'm stressed. Um, and then later regret it. So there's other things you can do. You can put even, you can put stakes on the line. Um, mm. So there's something called a commitment device that can be very powerful in breaking bad habits. There's a big distinction between, of course, habits that are addictions and habits that are just behaviors we don't like. And yet commitment devices can be helpful in both cases. And one of my favorite studies of how powerful they are is actually looking at cigarette smoking and how people try to quit. And a randomized controlled trial was done by Dean Carlin and collaborators. He's a professor at Northwestern University where they randomly assigned some people to all the standard smoking cessation tools, you know, a program that would try to help people who wanted to quit. And other people got all those tools and a bank account where they could put money that they knew they would have to give up if they failed a nicotine or cotinine urine test in six months. Hmm. And guess what? The people who had a way to put money into this account that they would have to give up, a commitment device, those people quit at a 30% higher rate than the ones who got the standard quit smoking package. And I think that's just an extraordinary result. There are lots of other findings showing how useful commitment devices are, but in this in this really extreme bad habit that's even in the addiction space, we see these benefits. So I think more people should consider commitment devices and there are tools anyone can use. I, you know, there are websites like stick.com, beminder.com. I have no affiliation with these websites. Sure. There are probably more than that that I don't know about that can help you literally put money on the line. You'll forfeit to a normally a charitable cause and a referee who will report on whether or not you've succeeded. And of course, you can set this up with somebody you know who cares about you and wants to help you break a bad habit. Well, so then let's talk about what it takes now to form good habits. I mean, I, I think it's been really helpful hearing about ways we can get out of the bad ones. But talk to me about the latest research on, on the formation of healthy ones. Yeah, so there's definitely research suggesting you want to have consistent context cues to some degree. So a context cue would be something like a reminder or a place or a location where I consistently try to engage in this behavior and then a way to reward myself for success, whether that's just tracking it, putting a little check mark on a piece of paper, having an app that watches how many steps you're taking today and uh, and gives you a check mark when you get 10,000 steps. Um, these kinds of small celebrations or, or tracking can be really helpful to reinforcing that positive that you need to build a habit. And, and the repetition is, is really critical. So when you, for instance, at New Year's make a resolution and sort of have this burst of enthusiasm, a lot of people say, well, you know, what good is it if it's gonna be extinguished by February? The research shows that if you put more attempts in, right? You, 
you say try to go to the gym more in January because you're extra enthusiastic, there is carryover. So the more you repeat, the more likely you are to have some durability. It's not 100% carryover, but but when you have that burst of enthusiasm, repeat the behavior as often as you can. There's no question. The more you repeat, the more it becomes ingrained and starts to feel automatic. Mm. So celebrate the successes. Repeat when you have those bursts of energy as much as you can because that's how you get the carryover. But let me tell you about a study that I did um, that has actually kind of a surprising twist and, and a more counterintuitive message. So I was really interested in the science of habits. I teamed up with um, some collaborators and with Google um, to try to figure out if we could build a program that would help Google employees exercise more regularly and build good habits around this. And we um, randomly assigned about 2,500 employees who wanted to exercise more regularly to two different programs that were designed to test different theories of how habits are formed. One of the programs encouraged people to be really consistent in when they exercised throughout the week and through actually throughout a month. We did a month long sort of startup period. The whole goal of this was let's design a startup program that will kickstart lasting habits. So we wanted to measure what happens after the program ends. So one version of the program during the startup month, lots of uh, focus on getting people to go to the gym at the same time of day during the same two hour workout window that they've told us is ideal. They get reminders to go then and they get payments for going to the gym at that time, but not at other times. We have a second group that also has a one month startup program also tells us the two hour window that's best for them to exercise is also encouraged to go at that time, but they get incentives for going to the gym anytime. So what we're essentially doing is creating a structure where one group of people is rewarded for going to the gym more consistently than the other. And indeed that's what we see. They both go at these two groups go at roughly the same frequency over the startup month, but one group makes 85% of their gym visits in the same time window every each day. And the other group only makes about half their visits at that time. So they're more variable in when they're doing it. And what we find is actually quite surprising. We were pretty sure that it would be better to be really consistent in when you visit the gym. But when we look at who maintains their exercise more after the program ends, we were surprised to find it was the people who'd been a bit more variable in mm. when they went. So why? What's going on here? We dig into the data. First of all, we weren't crazy. The people who had been really consistent and when they went, they, they continued to go a bit more often at that sort of sweet spot time they'd identified than the other people who ha had been encouraged to go whenever. But if they miss their sweet spot time, say it's 7 a.m. that they like to exercise, if they miss that workout, they do not show up. That, mm -hmm. It's that or bust. The other group has developed what I call more elastic habits. They've learned to get to the gym at 7 a.m. with some regularity, but when they miss 7 a.m., they have a backup plan. They go at noon, or maybe they go at 4 p.m., and net-net, that leads to more consistent engagement in these behaviors. So what I think is really important to think about as you're trying to build habits is there is some benefit to consistency. You know, find a, a consistent place. All these people are always working out at the same gym. Um, you know, motivate yourself in a consistent way, ideally reward yourself to the extent possible, whether it's by tracking yourself in an app, celebrating with friends, but don't be too rigid in the way you structure your workouts because, or, or any other behavior, your practice on Duolingo, your meditation, whatever habit you're trying to form, try to actually mix up a bit when you're in startup mode, when you do it so that you teach yourself to be resilient. When there's a traffic jam, and you can't get to the gym at the regular time, you can still squeeze it in at a backup time. Mm. And that net net is really important to building consistent, good behavior because life does throw us curveballs. Everything isn't always set up perfectly to align. Um, and to the extent that you're prepared for that and you've practiced dealing with that, you end up building more lasting habits. Yeah, super interesting study. I'm, I'm glad you shared that with us. Um, and just, I mean, just a few more practical questions and tips here. I mean, is, is it true that it's kind of 30 days to create a new habit, 60 days? Do we have any data or research that shows how long it takes to form a healthy habit? Yeah, so that is a myth that there is there is no magic number. And in fact, Wendy Wood of uh, University of Southern California, who's an expert on habits, dug in to try to figure out where that 30 day myth came from. And mm. she thinks she's traced it to a study that was done asking people who'd had plastic surgery about um, 
how comfortable they felt with their new face. And then it, it takes about 30 days in surveys for people to see, say they feel comfortable with a new face. So that is apparently the origin of the 30 day myth. There's no good evidence for that. And, and I've done this machine learning work actually with um, Colin Kemmerer of Caltech in the lead where we have tried to figure out with big data sets looking at uh, hand sanitizing behavior and also exercise, how long does it really take to form a habit? And the answer is it depends on the context. We see that in gyms, it takes order of magnitude a couple of months on average, but with a lot of variability across people to form a habit. And when it comes to caregivers learning to sanitize their hands and sort of make that an automatic process going in and out of patient rooms, that takes more order of magnitude a week or two. So it's context dependent. It probably depends on the complexity of the behavior you're trying to put on autopilot, the frequency with which you're repeating it while you're trying to build a habit. And there is no magic number. Mm. So finally, I mean, for those for those that have probably fallen into the trap of making New Year's resolutions and, and having them kind of fall apart, just what would you say or, or simplify to them as like, all right, here's here's how to get started on trying to have a few more healthy habits in your life? I think the number one most important thing that people get wrong when they're trying to build habits is that the key is to make it something that you want to repeat. You you want to make the behavior as pleasant for yourself as possible so it won't be an uphill battle to do it over and over again to the point where it is on autopilot and so that it will feel rewarding while you're engaging in it. So rather than trying to drag yourself early in the morning to a miserable workout on a painful machine, if you want to get in shape, think about signing up for Zumba classes with a friend who will hold you accountable where it'll be fun while you're at the gym and don't do it at a painful hour of the day. What can you do to make what would feel like an uphill battle enjoyable? And there's great research by um, University of Chicago psychologist Ayelet Fishbox showing we have the wrong intuition about this. We think we should look for the most effective route to achieving our goals, but when we actually pursue them in ways that we find more fun, that's what leads to persistence. There's lots of different ways to do it. You can make it social. I've done research on something I call temptation bundling, where you link something that you find really enjoyable with a behavior that would otherwise feel like a chore, like only watch your favorite TV show while you're exercising at the gym and now you look forward to it. That can work, but generally find ways to make it fun. Then habits will start to come more naturally because the repetition and the reward are all going to fall into place. I've been speaking with Katie Milkman, professor at Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Thank you so much for uh, joining us. This was really interesting. Thank you so much for having me. And Katie Milkman is the author of How to Change, the science of getting from where you are to where you want to be. And that's all the time we have for this week. Our producer is Andrea Brody. As always, we'd love for you to join the conversation on our Facebook page to talk about habits, discipline, and everything you heard today from Ryan Holiday and Katie Milkman. You can find a link at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Thanks as always for joining us. We'll see you next week. Have a wonderful day.